as I've said before, I prepare these. Don't read the back. Don't read the back. <laughs> I prepare these handouts somewhat as a reference, so you know where I'm headed, um, but also because I, you know, rather than furiously writing everything that I'm saying, I want you to be able to refer back to it. Right. Before we jump in, can we pray together? Gracious God, I give you thanks for the gift of this day, for another opportunity to come into your house, into your presence, and to come to learn by your spirit more about how you love us, how you have revealed yourself to us through your son Jesus, and how we are um, lifted higher, and that we are we are able to know ourselves and know you better at the same time, as we've talked about anthropology, theology woven together. We thank you, God, that you came to us, that you've shown yourself to us, and that we can know you. May we this hour see you even more clearly as we talk about these challenging, difficult, big, but important topics. Be with us. Grant us grace and peace and your spirit today. Amen. Okay. So, uh, easy question <laughs> for us to talk about at tables. Um, what happened on the cross? Yeah. Yeah, right. No, not so easy. <laughs> That's why we're talking about it. Yeah, right. I know it. <laughs> yeah, basically. This yeah, is, pretty uh... much. Um, so, two questions. What happened on the cross, and what does that do for us? What happened on the cross, and what does that do for us? So if you're at a table alone, I may suggest you move to another table. (laughs) I know our numbers are few today, but um, I don't know. They'll probably come over once they're done singing across the hall. We'll probably get a few stragglers. So what happened on the cross? What does it do for us? Talk about this at table for a few minutes and see if you can come up with the answer. Capital T. No, not cheating. No taking notes at the notes. You were asked to summarize. Is this going to Oh, good. Good for you. All right. Shall we check on them? Check on the students? How are we doing over here? Fine. 
finding ways forward. Well, thank you. We, we have the answer in our pocket. We just wanted to see who got the right one. But I'll give you the notes after class. <laughs> Something like that. This is what Jesus told me. I don't know about <laughs> On high, precisely. Do we want to uh, come back together as a whole group? And so um, we are hoping to kind of popcorn a little bit of your answers and put them up on the board here before we dive into the full discussion. And so I'll just make notes if you want to wander around. See what we uh, gathered. What happened on the cross and what does it do for us? So what happened on the cross? What does it do for us? Who's ready to talk at this table? We haven't gotten to resurrection yet. Oh, <laughs> at one minute. What was that? At one minute. At one, one minute. Meant also known as atonement. Hey, we were made at one. Anyway, <laughs> very good. Others. What else happened on the cross? I will. I will warn you. the The idea that there is one right answer is problematic. So correct. Don't don't be afraid. Dive in. Good. So we categorized our answers. In, in Jewish tradition, there was a sacrifice made, mm. which they were familiar with. Uh, in, in a political sense, uh, there was a resolution of conflict mm. in the fact that Jesus was eliminated from the political strife. Interesting. Uh, doctrinal, there was a fulfillment of Scripture. And from a Christian standpoint, it put us uh, at the end of sacrificial living and, and free of the law. Gave free of the law. That's the, I like that. That's, that's, we'll get into that today, too. But the I mean, law that's actually how defi- is defined as. The question of sacrificial tradition. How how did the Jews how did Jews know that this was a sacrifice? We talked about that too. The, the, what they realized or what they came to realize, you know, in in time, is is the answer. But how how many of them accepted at the time? We knew that. I mean, as a general rule, the Bible says they did not accept him, they did not know him, they rejected him, even his own family, even his own hometown. So we don't, I mean, I don't know, but I'm sure some, somebody, the, 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 uh, the apostles certainly were somewhat aware that this was a, at least 12, 11, uh, <laughs> sort of had the idea. Bridging the gap. did in fact make. Oof. Yeah. Oof. David said that number 12 did in fact make a sacrifice. I'm playing this for, I'm saying this for the people on the hearing because I've listened to this after the fact and gone, what did he say? And I would say it's somewhere in between there, right? Because even that is, because who said we haven't gotten to resurrection yet? Um, mm. Pre-resurrection, the sacrifice doesn't mean a whole lot, Right. I don't, I don't even think the, the apostles, the, well, pre, pre-apostles, the disciples at this point, they would have said, oh, well, Jesus died because he was a sacrificial lamb who had to die to save, the, save, the, save all of men and women, this humanity. No, I don't think the disciples would have said that on Good Friday or Holy Saturday. I don't it, think they got it for at least a week. <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least a week. I think the sacrifices ended when the temple was destroyed. Mm-hmm. It will be reinstated when the temple is rebuilt. Say that again. I want to make sure I heard the you. The sacrifices right. ended when the temple was destroyed. Right. They will be reinstated when the temple is rebuilt. That's why they're trying to rebuild the temple. Oh, oh, oh. Got it. So you in, in the Jewish Jesus. understanding. In the Jewish understanding. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. That is the, the hope. And I don't know... I don't know enough about the denominations within Judaism to say that all denominations would say we need to re- reestablish the temple so that sacrifice can start. They haven't had a temple for almost 2,000 years. 
they're still around and still doing well without it. So that's a, I think the Seder tradition has that expectation of yeah. being in Jerusalem and the temple being restored. Yeah, that's maybe yeah. where I'd go with that. Um, so these are big questions, and we've got a couple of answers kind of stabbing at where we're going. Um, and we'll try to look through a little bit of what uh, Christian tradition has done with these questions. Um, Michael, do you want to go sure. r- right into uh, a little bit of the big three? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we are broadly, for the first half of class today, we're broadly talking about atonement. And as Fred said, you can think of this as literally at one meant the quality of being at one. The idea is that um, we are we are in sin, we are broken, and there is some state that we are in that is not pleasing to God. How then do we become pleasing to God? Do we do something? Is it a sacrifice that we make in order to be pleasing to God? In the old tradition, that would be um, the sacrifice of a lamb or um, all sorts of animals were acceptable for sacrifice in order to cleanse us of our our sin and our guilt and to restore us so that we were at one, that we were good with God, right? So in understanding, so that's the ancient Jewish tradition, but then understanding this in relation to Jesus, we talk about um, scripture has a multitude of metaphors. And that's one thing we have to talk about is that it's all metaphoric language. And that's why people struggle to, or even you struggled, right? We didn't have one answer. We had multiple answers because what happened on the cross is a mystery and it's bigger than we can totally explain. So no, no one metaphor captures the entirety of what happened on the cross. That's why we need multiple metaphors to do so. Even scripture has multiple metaphors to describe what happened on the cross. So um, if you want to actually flip your paper back over so you see Jesus staring at you. Um, judgingly. No, I'm judging. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of a blessing. He's got blessing. Well, a little blessing. So the, one of the uh, oldest and most influential understanding of atonement, um, that is uh, Christ the victor. If you've ever heard of this before in Latin, it's often referred to as Christus victor. And this is a favorite among the uh, patristic theologians, right? The early church fathers, Augustine, Gregory of Nyssa, those guys, uh, they liked this idea a lot. And the idea is that it's this, this uh, dramatic struggle between God and the forces of evil in the world. So um, there's this idea that the, you know, the devil's trying to bring you down and God's trying to bring you up. Well, Jesus gets right in the middle and... Uh, Jesus, in this view, right, his, his humanity is hidden, and so, uh, but there's, uh, excuse me, the deity of, of Jesus is hidden in the human form, so the evil forces are fooled into thinking, well, here's an easy prey, let's get this guy, let's attack him, let's kill him. Uh, and Gregory of Nyssa uses the idea of a fish swallowing uh, or, or biting onto uh, a hook, with bait, and because of that, uh, the, ev- the like the evil embodied by fish, right, is saying, "Oh, this is an easy prey. Let me eat this worm." Well, it's a lot. You're getting a lot more than you uh, you think, right? You're biting into it, thinking it's just a worm, but no, you're actually being deceived. This is a hook, and so uh, in this way, under the veil of humanity, Christ triumphs over the demons, the devil, and all evil. So this is, um, right, the, the evil forces are trying to bring us down, but Jesus comes in and says, no, no, you are um, disempowered from here on out, right? You, are, uh, you, you took the bait, and now I have, I have won and changed the dynamic. Um, do you want to add anything else? Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, so some of the imagery that comes uh, from Scripture in connection to this is that um, sometimes we struggle with the image of um, the, that God comes as a thief in the night, right? It's that sense of, of kind of pulling, pulling the, the switch of what we would expect. God, we don't usually picture as the thief character, and yet that's the image that we get in Christ. So this concept of the bait, the switch that happens. Um, the interesting thing is over the course of history, Christus Victor has been interpreted in wildly different ways. Um, and so if you think in 
uh, more of a biblical time or an early Christian time, um, we talked about demonic spirits, right? Uh, you know, that, that person is possessed by a demon. That was the, the negative powers, so to speak, that, that Jesus overcomes in the cross, that he becomes the victor over. In our world today, this has been, uh, in the last hundred years or so, been talked about in things like uh, depression, anxiety, uh, psychological issues uh, as being the powers that are overcome in the cross. And so Christus Victor has been understood differently even over the course of time as we've come to understand the challenges in the world. Um, so if you think of this as, as kind of the, the culmination of, of God's plan uh, after the garden, following the garden, right? That Christ is the goal, the victor over all of evil. Um, that becomes kind of the result of God's plan. Great. Questions there? Does that make about as clear as mud? <laughs> Fred? Go ahead. Relating back to last Sunday and discussions you and I have had one-on-one, mm-hmm. these, the list of the various things under atonement, The interpretations, hmm? do they not vary with the culture or subcultures of the particular time and place? Precisely. And that's central to our discussion today. As we'll see as we go through some of the other models, the other images that we get, um, one in particular comes out of a very particular time and place. And as it gets adapted later on, it shifts dramatically and has actually quite negative consequences. It does. Um, and so we'll get into those. The, um, as I said, we're going to talk through, uh, or as Michael said, we're going to talk through the big three images first, and then we'll kind of look at what, those, what, their, what their strengths and weaknesses are, as well as then another model for understanding this. So, yeah, it, we'll hold that thought for about all of 30 seconds, and we'll oh, jump. I have one more, one more thought that came to mind. Yeah, go. Um, notice as we go through these what words we don't say with a given model. I think that's as much telling as anything. So when we talk about Christus Victor, what are words that we didn't say that we traditionally associate with what happens at the cross? King. Mm -hmm. Trinity. A big F word. No, not that one. (laughs) Forgiveness. Uh We didn't even say it. Pay attention to the things that are not here as well as the things that are. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go on to the second one, Michael. Are you ready? Just, to say, just to say very quickly that the, the limitation on this model is that in Gre- even in Gregory's idea of a fish right catching the bait, but there's, there's the hook there that changes the dynamic, disempowers the fish or forces of evil. Even in that, the idea that Jesus' humanity is a disguise um, to fool the evil powers, that's problematic, right? Mm. We've talked here about, before about docetism, Jesus just seems to be a human. Well, we affirm that that's not true, right? So Jesus is fully human, fully divine. So as with every single model of atonement, it breaks down at a certain point. It's good. You can walk with it for about a mile, and then any, anywhere past that, it starts to, your shoes start to fail. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work anymore. Um, but it's helpful because it's, it, it, what, it's what the church used for millennia, and still we can still use it. The next... One of my professors described docetism as God with a flesh suit. Oh. Like or a meat that. suit. God with a meat suit. <laughs> flesh suit. A meat suit. Yeah. Just seemed like one of us. Yikes. Yeah. Do you want to jump on to... Go ahead, number two. So number two is uh, satisfaction theory. And this is one that we hear about most in the church even today. Um, the idea that... Um, well, first, the, the most ancient idea comes from Anselm. So he's about a thousand years old, right smack in the medieval era. And he um, was living in this, uh, this time, this medieval thought world. And he had certain ideas about law and obligation. And uh, when you offend someone, how do you make things right? Let me point out first that for a thousand years before him, no one talked in these terms. No one understood what happened on the cross in these terms. So for a thousand years, we didn't talk like this. For the last thousand years, we have, 
and it's, it's grown and grown and more has changed since Anselm. But earliest, in the earliest period, uh, Anselm was saying that God and humans are related like lords and serfs. And since disobedience of the serfs, like humans, dis, uh, dishonors the Lord, there's two options. Either satisfaction, right? So we can pay off the Lord. We can say, I'm so sorry I did you wrong. Let me make it right. I will pay you or I will fix the barn that I broke or whatever, the, you know, fix it, make it right. Or there's a penalty, there's punishment. So Anselm was looking around the world and how it worked and said, oh, this must be how atonement works. Either we can, someone can, can step in and satisfy the offense or they can be punished. So Jesus must be the one who came in and satisfied the punishment so that we, satisfied the Lord so that we don't have to take the punishment. He substituted or he was that satisfaction for us. And so this is one of those moments when it's absolutely historically situated. You know, he's living in a feudal system. He's viewing the world through lords and serfs. And this is, this, this is taking the image from creation and applying it to God. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's very much situated in a particular time and place. But even as Michael's talking, you can hear an, un, another understanding of what happened and, ha, and how we understand this a little bit differently today by the applications that happened through uh, the Middle Ages and then through the Renaissance and all the way up to today. Martin Luther's application of this uh, changes the game just a little bit. And then on down further to um, Charles Hodge, who was at Princeton uh, 150 years ago. I said 100 years ago when we were talking, but I still think it's 1990. Um, so <laughs> it's true. Um, so the, the application of satisfaction shifts over time because culturally we're situated in a different time. We don't live in a feudal age. We don't think of... Uh, everything through the form of reparations that someone living in uh, Anselm's age would have. Uh, and so that the idea of doing wrong in an honor-based system in that regard uh, isn't a part of how we view the world. Um, most of us are fairly individualistic in that. Which, then it's not surprising how this shifts. Is that where we're going next, I assume, Michael? Into the part B? Or maybe not part B, but how I would understand it. The penal, penal yeah. substitution. Yep. Do you want to jump into that? Sure. So the reason I put the ellipses here is because this understanding of satisfaction, just as a means of uh, repairing the relationship, gets modified dramatically as we go through time. As I said, Martin Luther and then Charles Hodge take this into a slightly different form of penal substitution. So this comes, Edith, your question of two weeks ago, uh, I have this friend who, who can't accept Christianity because of what happens on the cross. Is under, she, she or he understands that God the Father killed Jesus the Son in order to set things right. And um, what's going on there? Is that right? And this is where satisfaction theory, again, only a thousand years old, changes and morphs into penal substitutionary atonement theory, and that's only a few hundred mm -hmm. years old. And so the image here is the one that most of us are more familiar with, I think, at least in the last hundred years or so, is this image of a, of a law court, right? We are the one on trial, and frankly, we're in the wrong. We know we're in the wrong. We've broken God's law. Should sound a little familiar. Um, that we've broken God's law, and therefore God... Uh, as the judge is ready to lay the sentence down on us, and instead Jesus jumps into the defendant's seat for us, right? This is the image that we get. Go ahead, Kent. Is this sort of where the Catholic Church got the whole thing of payment for the sins and, you know, hiring somebody to go on a crusade or whatever? I see, yeah. I would imagine it's related. I don't know if it's a one-to-one -one timeline. You got something, Dan? Things we came up with are essentially number two. So there was satisfaction we were envisioning in the Jewish tradition, mm -hmm. political resolution in the Roman world, and fulfillment in scripture in our world. Clearly, we have adopted that. 
It, beca it became the primary, I would say, in the last hundred years. Would you say, Michael? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Dan. The flip side to Kent's comment was, you know, I, I completed the, the uh, Judaism course. Uh, and their belief is that, um, you know, you're just trying to do more goods than bads. And in the final, in the end, they're gonna, there's going to be a list of the good you did and the bad you did. And, and you're going to hope you did more good than bad mm. rather than trying to make atonement for the bad. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So that that goes along with substitution, but it's a kinder, gentler yeah way of way of thinking of that. So with this, uh, as Michael was kind of articulating um, in regard to the question you mentioned from a few weeks ago, the penal substitution uh, falls down when we lose the connection of the Trinity. That's really the central piece of this. If we can view this through, through an Anselmian satisfaction view, which is to say that God sends Jesus the Son, but that Jesus is a part of the Godhead in that, right? Jesus has volition and accepts that call and goes into the role of sacrifice for us, then we're fine. But if we start to break apart the Trinity, where it becomes God sends the Son as a sacrifice, and we stop at the end of that sentence, there becomes essentially what's known as divine child abuse, right? Yeah. And so no wonder some people perceive God to be a jerk. We'll just leave it at that. There, yeah. there are worse words you could use. And don't have, want to have anything to do with Christianity or the church. If our language in our preaching and in our, our teaching and in our communication among colleagues and friends is that God killed Jesus. That doesn't sound good, right? Go ahead, David. Yeah. It's got to be on the recording. Then <laughs> for those people to view it that way, had they not even bothered to consider in the beginning was the word and mm. God was the same? Worthy question. I, I do think that there, there is a lack of understanding of Jesus having a, a role in the Trinity. Um, and not just as the, the pawn, uh, not just as the one that is moved. Um, I do think we have to have an understanding that Jesus has uh, a preeminent role in what God does and God is. And so if we, if we can view it as Jesus steps into our place, choosing to step into our place, it alleviates the uncomfortableness, the negative image of God that is developed here. Because I don't think anywhere in Scripture says, you know, God is that, that awful jerk that we find in that understanding of atonement. Go ahead. Oh. Our discussion of at, at one moment was that Jesus was at one with us in human, uh, undergoing human judgment and results and he went beyond it because he lived through it mm -hmm. to resurrection so that he showed us that we don't have to cow to human wisdom, but that God's wisdom is preeminent, and he showed us that we can live it through it. It's not, I think Paul did an excellent job showing us. Yeah, I think she's getting already to number three just a little bit, so we'll, yeah, we'll, I we'll think hold on to that thought for just a moment with the at one minute. I yeah. like that. Go ahead. Pastor Michael, coming back to your earlier comments about these three theories, is there a danger in all of them in oh, yeah. that, to paraphrase one of my law school professors, any legal principle can be carried to its logical extreme? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As Michael and I talked leading up to this class, um, the, the concept of metaphor that uh, Pastor Michael referenced, Sally Brown, who was a professor of mine, was big on this idea of atonement as metaphor. Um, and any more metaphor can be taken too far, as every preacher knows, um, <laughs> and every uh, congregation knows from listening to those preachers. <laughs> um, that ultimately, if you take penal substitution to its furthest extent, you can have a terrible image of God. If you take Christus Victor to its furthest extent, you can understand that the powers in the world are on a, almost an equivalent basis with God. Um, 
And then the third one, which we'll, I think we'll dive into, or did you well, want to may, say more? May I just finish this out to say, um, this is still the, pre- penal substitutionary atonement is still the predominating theory in the, the broader church, especially mm-hmm. in the more evangelical church. Yep. And I would suggest that part of that is because um, with all good intents, lots of people try to simplify and reduce the gospel down to something that can be handed out in a little pamphlet or a little track mm-hmm. and say, this is the whole gospel. And this, at the start of it, it makes sense in our judicial system, in an individualistic society of Jesus, one man came and he uh, died in my place. And that's that makes sense in the modern world. It makes sense in our judicial yeah. system. Um, and it's still pushed in uh, with all good intents but as we've said any you push on any metaphor too long and it gets problematic the one thing i want to turn your attention to on the top of page two it's just a slight change of words but instead of substitution um dorothy solee makes this a point rather convincing point that another failure of this theory is it doesn't really distinguish well between substitute and representative substitute and representative that they're very different because in substitute the word substitute uh, substitution implies something that can be replaced so like when a machine wears out a new part is substituted but representation is more of a, a human personal word and so jesus is our representative standing in for us speaking and acting for us but he doesn't push us out of the way he speaks on our behalf. We still have our our place. We still ha- we are still there. Jesus is not pushing us out of the way, and a representative doesn't push away our responsibility. That's why we still have to confess sin. It's not that Jesus died for all of our sins, so we're saved and we're good. It, that is substitution. But representative, changing that phrase just slightly, means that we are forgiven, but. Jesus is representing us. We still have to, to um, be a participant. We still have to claim and, and know the grace of God and confess our sins. So, moral influence? Yeah, absolutely. This may be bad, bad theology, right? The, the, I think of it as the... Um, the sacrifices that were put on the altar were burnt for the most part and, and, and they were burnt for the fragrance, they were burnt for the aroma, they were built, burnt for the uh, smoke to go to heaven to offer to God. Um, the, the, the substitution was never buried in the ground um, and when we say we killed Jesus, uh, the body was never found. He was taken to heaven like the smoke of the of the, of the uh, altar and i see that similarity there that this was an offering this the 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 substitution for christ was he was separated from the father by his death and that was penalty enough but he was taken back as the offering to heaven and is that actually see that's that's a modern understanding of jesus's death was he actually separated from the father some would say yes some would say no we actually don't know Yes, in Scripture, when Jesus is on the cross, he does cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we easily and quickly assume that means that God the Father is somehow separated and that the Trinity for this moment is is ruptured in some way that we can't quite understand. But um, Jesus' audience, all those around him who would have heard those words, would have heard and understood the whole of Psalm 22, not just that God is... It's, it is a lament psalm, right? Of course, Jesus is dying. He needs words to lament. So he goes to his prayer book. He goes to the hymns and the words that he knows best. But the end of that psalm is praise. And so I think it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm just quoting the first few words of this whole thing. But if you know the psalm, you know it ends in praise. So from that, some, from that one line, people, people make this expansive theology of separation and I don't know that we can. I don't know that we can do that. So it's it's a difficult leap to make, but I I understand where you're at with that, Dan. Um, I like the idea of the sacrificial imagery and the 
the raising of the smoke to God. Um, and I will say that true satisfaction understand, or excuse me, true sacrificial understanding um, does get at what you're talking about uh, of what happens on the cross. Because again, we're talking, these are the big three, but I'm, these are all Condensations? That's the word I'm looking for. Condensations? Oh, it sounds like a real word. Sure. Um, of, of a variety of different theories that have been pushed together, including a sacrificial theory that fits into this one, uh, but it's just a portion of this. We'll talk more about that if we can today. Yeah. So moving on then to moral influence, uh, top of two, um, it's, this is a whole other theory that really says... It's, this isn't some cosmic battle. This isn't the uh, Christus Victor model. It's not a legal transaction, both of which um, are really a complete, uh, would appear to be complete apart from participation of, uh, of those on behalf of whom this action is performed, right? But uh, rather, Christ shows God's love to influence us and compel us to respond, right? So this is a, is not just one aspect of what happens on the cross. Maybe this is the entirety of what happens on the cross. Um, again, realizing this is just truly another metaphor and understanding. It's not about the powers of darkness. It's not about being in your place. It's about saying, God in Christ loves us so much. He is coming to earth in the flesh. And look what we've done to him. We have killed him. And that is something we do. Um, and the question we'll ask in just a few moments is, did Jesus have to die on the cross? Um, I don't know that. I don't think we can know that. But the idea is, um, in Christ's advent, um, we ultimately killed him. But through all of it, God's love is shown and revealed, and our job is to respond and to say, yes, God loves us. God came to us, and uh, we have to, in order to, um, the atoning work of Christ is only completed when um, faith uh, um, comes, and faith transforms our life. I'm going to tip my hand here. Uh, of the big three, this is my favorite theory, um, and it's because it, it takes into account, uh, beyond Jesus' death, it takes into account his entirety of life, right? So the advent of Christ, as Michael's saying, that his life, his teaching, the way he interacted with people was the way we ought to live, right? The way that Christ lives is meant to be the way, the truth, the life that we follow, right? The trouble is when a perfect God interacts in an imperfect world, we respond, as again, Michael said, we kill him. That's our response. We cry out, like the, the, the Jews cry out for for God to come and, and interact to save them from their troubles. Uh, we do this today, by the way. And when God comes, not the God we wanted, right? And so I love this, this understanding because it shows us not only who God is, it shows us who we are. We are people who, even when we, when we get what we think we want, we throw it away. And so the influence part of this is to say that we see what happens through the cross and then the resurrection is to say, now you guys need to follow this. Did you see what you did? Did you see what you did? It's almost God's like the parent kind of going, okay, now you fell down. Are you going to climb on the monkey bars or off, jump off the bed the next time, you know, the same way that you were doing before? Um, hopefully we learn from this is I think that what I like about the moral influence. And yeah, to just emphasize again what you just said, that in so many models, in the reductionistic model of satisfaction, penal substitution, there's this idea that um, the most important thing of Jesus's life is his death and resurrection, right? Um, I remember when I was coming up for ordination in the, in the American Baptist Church, and I tried to say the whole life of Christ from birth through life, all of his teachings, his baptism, his transfer, all of these elements of the life of Christ save us. And they, they were like, well, what? They were really here. <laughs> and I was leaning more into this. The whole of Jesus's life shows us how to live. It should show, yeah, 
Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. We are called to follow in his footsteps, not just to say the cross is that. The cross is it, right? What about the Sermon on the Mount? What about the baptism of Christ? All of these things together show us and trans- tra- if we respond in faith, transform us. So what I find deeply ironic in, in that these are the big three, right, is that they actually come from a monograph that was written by uh, Gustav Alain back in 1931, I think it was. And um, you're laughing, Michael. <laughs> so, um, it's still 1990. So, uh, yeah, 1990. It's only 60 years ago. Um, so anyway, he wrote this monograph, and um, in it, he's, he's often known, in fact, as we were, talking, we were talking about that, he's often known as a proponent of the Christus Victor model of atonement. Okay? It's because in his monograph, he described these two so poorly that he made the argument for this one. Does that make sense? You ever, you ever read somebody's argument, or maybe it's political season, you heard a politician make somebody else's argument so poorly it makes theirs look good? That's exactly what he did in his monograph. Um, and so he was a big proponent of the Christus Victor theory, which I think is interesting now that most of Christianity, most of, uh, at least, like you said, evangelical Christianity, has focused instead on a subset of the satisfaction theory in penal substitution, that this has become the primary. But all of this is really just a portion of the theology surrounding this. And so... I'm trying to remember. Help me, help me out here, Pastor Ben. <laughs> there was this song... Yes, in the, when the, you think this is all just heady stuff that only theologians are talking about. No, this is stuff that goes into our hymnal as well. When we choose... Yeah. When the hymnal committee for Glory to God started working oh, 10 years you're ago... You're going to the, he- the Gettys hymn? It's not in there. No, it's not. There was a hint. There was in Christ alone. In Christ alone, that was it. Thank you. <laughs> in Christ alone is uh, this hymn, this modern hymn, probably written about fifteen, twenty years ago. And the Keith and Kristen Getty wrote this hymn, which it's beautiful, except it leans into penal substitution in one line of one verse. One line of one verse. And the hymn David's committee. <laughs> do you know the story, David? The hymn committee said, "Well, that's not." It's not in there, actually. You can get the hymnals, yeah. but we're not going Because it, it's not it in there because we, the hymnal committee said to the Gettys, can we change? It was the love of God was satisfied. And the we, of God leaning into this, was satisfied. Yeah. But we wanted to change it. The hymnal editors said, can we say instead the love of God was magnified? And the Gettys said, no way. No way. So this song... It's not in there. Even though a lot of the church sings this song, it didn't make it into the hymnal because the PCUSA uh, pastors, theologians, and, and musicians said, we don't want to lean into this. We do not want to lean into this model as the only way. The Getty said, it is. This is explain what's happening on the cross. So there was a strange tension. So that's all. Yeah. I've heard that discussion slightly differently, but yes. Uh, <laughs> it all depends on who you ask. Right? That's true. Uh, um, but it's true. It, it affects the way we sing. It affects the way we think. It affects what we hear in sermons uh, and even as we read. And so, you know, if John Calvin at the beginning of the Institutes talks about Scripture as a lens, our trouble is we don't use Scripture as the lens. We use our theological model uh-huh. as a lens when we read Scripture. And so if you are looking and reading Scripture through the lens of penal substitution, that's what you see. If you're looking through the lens of moral influence theory, that's, that's what, what you, you see. see. And the same with Christian's Vic. You look at the world through the lens that you have taken on or acclimated over the course of time. Um, quickly, I'll, I'll go into that next section. Yeah. Um, so if you uh, look down underneath the big three points there, you'll see A, B, C, D of A, Christ died for us, B, liberation from sin, death, demonic powers, C, the purposes of God, and D, reconciliations. Everybody see where I am on the handout? Okay, so this is an articulation of ten atonement theories. <laughs> Quiz comes later. Um, so <laughs> this is to say that... Um, while Gustav Alain articulated these three, with his focus, of course, on Christus Victor, um, Peter Schmieken, who wrote uh, a book called Saving Power, I have it here, um, if anybody's interested in looking after the class, 
And he articulates that, no, 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 it's not just three. And the trouble is, we, when we boil it down, because it's easy to teach, frankly, <laughs> um, it, we only teach three. But the reality is that there's a whole lot going on in the background here. And I'm just going to briefly summarize, and we could spend a whole series of classes talking about each one of these. Um, so these break it down. Christ died for us. Uh, this is the language of sacrifice. It comes from the letter of the Hebrews. And so if you were to imagine um, that sense of what you were talking about, Dan, that concept of sacrifice, but not layered with either satisfaction or Christus Victor, that this is God stepping in and offering sacrifice on our behalf, right? The sacrificial system in the Jewish tradition was not a bad thing. It was intended as a means of reparation. Uh Sound familiar? by God for us, that we could participate in God's work, right? And so Jesus, in this case, serves as that sacrifice. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. If you want to know more, we can talk after. Um, uh, Another one of the Christ died for us ones there, justification by grace. We know this language uh, through Paul and through Martin Luther. And uh, the concept there is that this is not just a... um, a sacrifice being made, but that there is essentially grace being done on our behalf in regard to the law, okay? God's law given that we cannot make up for. We can never appease the law, and so therefore God appeases the law for us. Grace. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And so you find that there are scriptural motivations for each one of these. Um, and so, we, can, we I mean, again, we could spend a lot of time going through and looking for each one. But there are subtle differences. You may hear me say one and think, boy, that sounds like just the one prior. And it's because the differences are just slight. Again, listening for what words aren't used to describe. Does that make sense? Penal substitution we've already covered, again, through Charles Hodge. Uh, and a few others. Um, that this has become the kind of the language of the day. Do you get how the sacrifice... And then how the law and grace appeasing the law leads to penal substitution, right? Can you see the thought process that happens there? But again, these are culturally con- uh, in cultural context. We think of it through a judicial lens because that's the world that we're living in. Um, B, the second category there, liberation from sin, death, and demonic powers. Uh, the liberation piece there uh, shared by Arrhenius and, and then 20th century liberation theology. And we'll have to have another conversation someday about how those two intertwine. But the idea here connects back to Christus Victor, right? God overcoming the powers, the brokenness in our world, the, whether that's demonic powers or psychological effects or whatever, right? But also... As uh, uh, Catherine talked about last week, mm-hmm. last week, um, the sense of liberation theology in our in our day and age, breaking against the bondage that we create as human beings, right? That this is God saving us from that. You think about the Roman powers in the same way that we think of some of the institutional powers of our day, right? Whether that be slavery or poverty or economic systems that keep people downtrodden. Um, It's breaking out of those. Uh, C, the purposes of God. Number five there, you see the renewal of creation. And you've got Athanasius, and then you see Anselm in the next, and Schleiermacher in the third. These get, I will say, I read them over, and I went, oh, man, I don't even know if I can articulate the difference in these three, but I'll do my darndest. Um, So under the renewal of creation, i got to turn the page a little further here. So renewal of creation is restoring life in the face of death, forgiving sins by Jesus' death on the cross, and to restore the true knowledge of God. This is about the knowledge of God, the imago dei, uh, being lost by sin in the world. Okay, the image of God being lost. And so this renewal of creation is about reclaiming the image of God. God sending Jesus into the world to show us who God is. Okay? Sounds slightly like moral influence, but it's just a piece of it, one part of it. Restoration of creation has a lot more to do with the actual result of sin in the world, that sin breaks the divine human relationship, that the relationship with God is broken. 
Get the difference between Imago Dei being broken or, or misaligned or covered up. That this is about the relationship of God. Follow me? In the restoration of creation. And so restoring the relationship between the created and the creator. I know there's a thousand questions that we could go into with all of these. And then this one, the goal of, uh, excuse me, Christ as the goal of creation by Schleiermacher is that this is kind of the trajectory we were getting to. If we go back to kind of Christus Victor as that Christ not only overcomes the powers, but is the result of the hero of the story, you know, uh, that's the culminating concept of what we're, Creation was going all along. Christ is the goal. Yes? In this thing about 25 times. You never used it once, either of you. No, we were hoping to talk about it in the second half of the class. We'll so. get there next week. <laughs> we'll come back and do it again. Okay. Yeah, um, well, I just wondered why it was left out. Yeah, and so violence is actually, you find it in a variety of these systems. And so the question is, does God fight violence with violence, or does God fight violence with sacrifice? And you do find it's both, but it's, a, it's spoilers for next week, <laughs> when Michael will have to do this alone, because I won't be here. Um, uh, the last few there on reconciliation, Christ is the way, Christ the way to the knowledge of God. And again, the references are there for you to look up of who said what and why. Um, so again, this gets into uh, knowledge of God, about wisdom and power in the world, which again sounds a bit like moral influence and Christus Victor. It's a bit of both, you understand? So that Christ is the way to the power in the world, as opposed to the powers of the world that we often follow. Okay? If you're getting lost in this, don't be surprised, it's okay. It's a part of the journey. Um, Christ the Reconciler, again, this is about wisdom and power, uh, but it's the judgment against the world's claims of power. So a subtle difference from the previous one is that Christ is the way of knowledge and power versus a judgment over the worldly powers. Slight difference there. And again, you can see why these get kind of muddied over these course of these three. And then, let's see, the wondrous love of God. Uh, this is Abelard, uh, and I love Peter here. He um, has a tendency to focus on that sense of love as the, the, the reason for it all. And so if we go back to creation, creation is an act of love. And what do we do? Toss it aside. And so God continues to come to us and say, no, 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 come back, I love you. And we continue to go, no thanks. And so the cross becomes an act of love. That's my best summary of 10 in that was, however fast that I was. I think we need to give you an applause. <laughs> that was, that was I just need a nap. Um, there you go. <laughs> Might I lead us on to the top? Can we skip over the bottom of two? Or do you want, do you want to focus in on something there? Um, I do want to say that the, the three points there at the bottom of two, the, the one, two, three that you find there, these are the things that are found in all of these atonement theories. These are the similarities. Jesus' life, cross, and resurrection mean a judgment of God against the world. Jesus actualizes the new being for humanity and the world according to God's purposes. And the final affirmation has to do with Jesus' participation in our life. The Gospels make clear from the beginning to end that Jesus was one of us, identified with us, and took part in our life. Those are the things that we can say about all the theories, all the metaphors, to go back to that word, that stand firm no matter how far, how far we take the metaphor. When we break those, we've taken the metaphor too far. So I know we've thrown a lot at you this, this morning. <laughs> if you are still awake, um, <clears throat> what I hope that you walk away with this morning is when we talk about why did Jesus come, what does the cross mean, and what does it mean for us, these are very difficult questions that in 2,000 years we have not come to uh, total agreement on, not even the scriptures themselves have one singular explanation of all of these things, because again, there it is a mystery. It, it, there is we can only plumb the depth so far, and then there, we see that there's so much more, and our ropes run out. We can't go any further, right? Uh, and so we have to affirm mystery, and whether it's three or whether it's ten or whether it's a hundred, we have to say Christ died for us. What does that mean? 
I don't exactly have one answer. I have at least three or 10 or more. But the, the point is that we have to uh, use all of these. What Joel Green in another one of the books would Mark say. Baker, yeah. Mark Green? Mark Baker and Joel Green. Mark, yeah, there we go. Mark Baker and Joel Green would say in their book is that these theories of atonement have to be woven together into a constellation of theories. We can't pick one and say the others are all wrong. We have to keep them all together and hold on to the tension between them because any one of them is wrong. All of them together reveal the truth and the, the, even the, the um, difficulties in the others. So top of three, I want to just turn to these general principles. I want to try, we're not going to be able to, but put atonement to bed for this week. <laughs> we will uh, discuss the question next week of violence and the cross, coming to Jerry's point. Asking the question, so we can go with this question, did Jesus have to die in order for us to be saved? Um, and we'll talk about that and the violence of the cross at the top of next week and try to um, finish up this. Although there's so much more we can be talking mm -hmm. about, right? We're scratching mm -hmm. the surface. I want us to walk away with these five points at the top. This is again from Migliori. We were just talking about, number one, we should respect the riches of New Testament metaphors and the diversity of these classical formulations rather than trying to reduce it all down to one. The atoning work of Christ encompasses the whole gospel. It's not just his death and resurrection. It's everything. The whole gospel is important. His ministry, his teaching, the cross, the resurrection, everything should be held up. Nothing omitted, nothing isolated from the others. And then the work of atonement is truly based on God's grace. He is the one who said, let me send Jesus, this God the Father sent Jesus into the world to show us love, right? Not to be the divine child abuser, the phrase you used earlier. Um, and we have to give, give um, emphasis to God's grace and God's love first and foremost. Um, and yes, there is a sense of judgment, right? Jesus did die, right? So what do we do with that? The, God, the judgment of God serves as this purpose of grace. So, um, but we should not allow the... Um, a doctrine of atonement should, present, should not present grace and judgment as conflicting with each other, but being really intertwined. Mm -hmm. Then finally, the atoning work of God in Christ has significance not just for you and you and you, our whole community, our whole society, the whole world, and really the entirety of the cosmos. If we agree that the whole cosmos is broken or fallen, whatever language you choose to use, whatever God did in Christ is setting us on a path and has shown us a foretaste of what the, recon the reconciliation that God in Christ will bring at the end. There's a foretaste, and we're stuck in that precious meantime we have already been redeemed. We have already been reconciled. And yet, it's not all fixed. It's not all back to where it should be. That's a lot. Yeah. So, a final thought for me is, it's not napkin theology. It's not something you can just draw out <laughs> while you're having a cup of coffee with a friend. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to grasp the pieces of and to grab meaning from. So if today you heard something that made, made new sense for you in one of these three or in one of the ten or somewhere along the way, I pray that, that that is your takeaway today. That if you saw it and said, man, I've only ever thought of the cross through the lens of forgiveness. What else can the cross mean for me? That to me is the takeaway. That we are continually learning. Not continually going, man, it's too hard. But continually saying, how can I grow in following Christ, the, the cross of Christ today? Amen. Next week, we will turn to violence in the cross. I have one little section more from Migliori on Jesus, and then we'll transition into starting to talk about the Holy Spirit uh, over the next few weeks. So thank you, Pastor Ben, for joining me this morning. My great pleasure. Before we run to worship. I did bring uh, some books. If anybody wants to borrow something, please let me know, and uh, you'd be welcome to borrow a book. Let us pray. Gracious God, it is almost too much to take in, to try to understand uh, the climax of all history, what exactly happened when your son um, was put upon the cross, how his death 
means salvation and forgiveness for us, exactly what this atonement means. We cannot fully grasp it, but we thank you for your spirit with us here today as we have sought to understand our faith-seeking understanding. We want to know. We want to know you better. We want to understand how you love us and all the ways that you have shown that love to us. Help us to hold on to the tension, to hold on to these different metaphors and understand that your love for us is so vast, so big that we cannot put it into simple terms. It would take a lifetime, more than a lifetime, to explain all the ways you love us. Help us to hold on to that and stand in awe at the mystery of your love, your grace, and all that Jesus has done for us through his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and even, yes, his ascension. Help us to lean into the mystery and to stand in awe. We give this over to you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and say together, Amen. Amen. Thank you.